It's Daily Thunder, booming out the truth of Jesus Christ live every weekday morning from the Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado. To learn more, visit ellerslie.com. Well, welcome back to this another episode in the storyline of Scripture. We've been walking through just this grand overview picture of this idea that everything in the Word of God focuses on Jesus Christ. Now, over the last couple of weeks, we've looked at this idea of the kingdom being introduced and rejected, the kingdom, the people, and the promise, the kingdom rehearsed, the kingdom in waiting, and now we're entering into the grand finale of it all. This is where everything has been leading to this point, and it's all focused on the king himself. I mentioned this in the first couple of episodes, but everything in the Old Testament leads us to Jesus and his fulfillment on the cross. And then what you see in the New Testament is everything either points back to the cross or everything flows from that incredible reality. Again, this whole thing is about Jesus. And in this particular episode, I want to talk about the king. I want to talk about Jesus. Now, I know that we've been doing that all throughout this series, but the reality is, is that as you're working through scripture, you come to the reality of, of, of the gospels. What you see is the fulfillment, the climax of what all of this has led to. Now, before we jump into the Gospels themselves, I just want to remind us, kind of coming out of the last episode, this idea of the perfect timing. Uh, When you look at the time that Jesus came upon the earth, it really was God's perfect timing. Uh, What you see, as we mentioned last time, is the Hellenization of the world, meaning Alexander the Great comes into the world in 333 BC or so and just conquers the known world. And the world became, quote-unquote, Greek. Uh, Greek became the major language. It was the commerce language. And, and this was a part of God's perfect timing because, as I alluded to last time, when, when the Gospels come out and when the disciples are spread across the world to proclaim the good news, do you realize that everyone had a central language? So I don't think it's by accident that Jesus came on the scene when he did. When God took on flesh, it was perfectly timed because there was one major language of the world. Something else I just think is so profound in that idea is that crucifixion was at its height. When you go back into the histories, you find out that the Persians had invented crucifixion, like during the time of like Esther. But what you begin to realize is that the Romans took that Persian idea of crucifixion and they basically perfected it. Uh, Crucifixion by the time of Jesus obviously was a a way that you kill the common criminal and it was very painful. It often endured for, or it often would go on for days, but crucifixion was at its height. And again, I don't think that's by accident when God comes as man. And the reason being is that when you come to his death at the end of the gospels, what you realize is that Jesus couldn't just kill himself for the sake of the cross. He had to be put upon a cross. In other words, this this wasn't a self, yes, he gave up his own spirit. I I, I get that. But the reality is, is the cross is a beautiful portrayal, a beautiful picture of what you and I are called to do. Jesus says we are to take up our crosses, which means that we can't just bring death to our own flesh. See, someone has to nail you on a cross. And so the fact that Jesus used a cross, not just in metaphorical sense, but the fact that he died upon the cross at the height of when it was at the the perfected state in Roman history, I think that was perfectly timed by God. 
And then one just last idea is that when Jesus shows up on the scene, there was this desperation in the Jewish mind for rescue. In other words, because of the Roman occupation and because of what was going on on a historical stage, there was this overwhelming desire of we need rescue. God, God, we need you to come and save us. And again, God shows up and it is beautiful and I think perfectly timed. Now, when you look at the Gospels, the four Gospels all portray a different focus, or maybe a different emphasis, I'll say it that way. The focus is Jesus, but the emphasis is slightly different. In Matthew, Matthew portrays Jesus as the king. He's using a lot of Jewish background and prophecy to articulate that Jesus was and is that kingly Messiah. Mark emphasizes Jesus' humanity. In other words, he talks a lot about the fact that he was he was human. Luke spends a lot of his time talking about Jesus being a servant. And John obviously has this grand overview vista of the fact that Jesus is God himself. And that's really important as you come to the Gospels, because depending on which Gospel you're reading, you need to realize that the Gospel writer has an emphasis for how they're showcasing the reality of Jesus Christ. Now, what I'd like to do in this particular episode is kind of give a, a broad perspective, if you will, of the birth, the ministry, and the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, we're not going to go into this deeply. We could spend, obviously, weeks and months just fleshing out the incredible truth of God coming and being man. But instead of doing that, I just want to give some quick overview things just to remind us and refresh us in light of this idea of the storyline of Scripture itself. So in the birth of Christ, I want to emphasize this idea that, that there is this language that we need to become very accustomed to. The Jews had the language of Messiah. Uh, that word Messiah means the anointed one. It was a title. In other words, when, when you look at this idea of Messiah throughout the Old Testament, it was originally used for kings. Uh, in other words, it was God's anointed ones to serve on behalf of God. For example, Saul or David is given that title as the anointed one or Messiah. But it also foreshadowed the anointed one, meaning the one that was going to come and rescue and save and deliver, speaking of Jesus himself. So you see this title running throughout the Old Testament that there is this Messiah. And, and though there are these lowercase messiahs, in other words, they're not Jesus, we understand that, but they were anointed ones to do the work of, Christ, uh, to do the work of God. But they were foreshadowing Jesus, who is the anointed one. Now, when you take that word Messiah and you put it into the Greek, what you have is a word Christ. But what's interesting is whereas Messiah is often a title, Christ, the Greek translation, is often used as a name, which is why in a lot of our translations, it'll say Jesus Christ or Christ Jesus. But it really is that same idea. That word Christ is the Greek translation of that word Messiah. In other words, when we say Jesus Christ, we are saying that he is the anointed one, that he is the rescuer, the savior, the deliverer of all the world. I just think that's really important because as you come into the gospels, it's important to realize that there is an expectation being placed upon this idea of this person who is called the Messiah, that, that he is going to rescue, he is going to redeem, he is going to save. The problem was, is the Jewish expectation of what they thought the Messiah was supposed to do didn't perfectly align with Jesus. And you see this conflict happening all the time where 
what they presumed the Messiah was supposed to do, or what they presumed Jesus should be focused on, is actually not quite what Jesus was doing. Let's talk about that in just a moment here. Let me give you a passage from Paul. And I think this is a great way of enunciating the birth of Christ because it is quite a mystery. Paul says this in 1 Timothy 3.16. He says, without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifested in the flesh. When you look at that passage, it's interesting. Paul says, without a controversy, I mean, without a debate, this one is, is quite difficult to understand. Paul says, Jesus, God himself, was manifested in the flesh. And the reason this is a mystery is because here is God who's invisible, and yet the invisible God makes himself visible. We call that the incarnation, that God took on flesh. And we've talked about this so many times before over the years, but you, you realize that Jesus wasn't like half God, half man. See, that's not biblical. See, he, he, he wasn't like Hercules, right? He, he's not uh, a, a, a portion, you know, this myth, mythology where it's like part God, part human. See, that, that's not Jesus. Jesus is fully God, 100% God in nature, and yet 100% man. And Paul says, when you begin to wrestle through the dynamics of that, that is quite a controversy. That, that is quite a mystery. And without a doubt, that, that one's hard to explain, Paul says. And yet our hope, our faith, rests on the fact that the God of the universe came to be a, born in a little manger, this babe who grows up to be the Messiah himself. God took on flesh. Now, if we just jump forward to his ministry, what you're going to see in the ministry of Christ is that, as Luke says in Luke 3.23, that Jesus began his ministry when he was about 30 years of age. So here's Jesus. He's 30 years old. And the reason that's really significant is because in the Jewish culture, it was presumed that until you were 30 years old, that was the age of maturity. In other words, yes, you know, you, you were seen as a man typically at 13, 14 years old, the whole bar mitzvah thing. But the age of maturity was around age 30. And typically, from what I found out, is that there was a lot of rabbis who were traveling uh, the countryside and preaching, and the typical age of a rabbi traveling around was around 30 years old. Again, it goes back to that idea of the age of maturity. So here you have Jesus, who is the Messiah, who is coming into his ministry at 30 years of age. Now, we understand that he was a carpenter's son, so likely he grew up as a carpenter, not woodworking. It's actually a stonemason when you get into the language. And so here's Jesus. He probably worked with his hands, was tutored under his father, Joseph. Dad died eventually. And uh, here he is taking care of his family. He grows up. He's about 30 years old. And we see that now he's being ushered into his ministry. And that pinnacle point of the entrance of ministry was his baptism. So let me just give you three quick ideas when it comes to Jesus's ministry. One, you had his baptism, which I'm calling his personal Pentecost. We understand that, again, Jesus is both fully God and fully man. But when you get into this idea of his baptism, what you see is that what the apostles are going to experience in Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost, Jesus had that same reality taking place in his life at his baptism. In other words, yes, he is God. He is fully God. And yet what you see is here is Jesus as a man going down into the water. And as he comes up, the Holy Spirit descends upon him. And though he is God, he's now filled as a man with the fullness of God himself. It's his personal Pentecost. 
Jesus did not start his ministry until after the baptism, which is really significant. Every gospel records this, and it is so significant because in Because what it's showcasing us is that Jesus didn't just, in his own strength, in his own resource, in his own power, go out and do ministry. Rather, though he is God, he fully relied upon the Father to be the resource for his life and for his ministry. In other words, here he is, he's demonstrating to the world what a man looks like filled with the Spirit of God. Well, how did Jesus do his ministry? Well, Jesus over and over tells us that he did nothing except that which the Father was doing. He was constantly living in the resource and the fullness of the Father. So the Spirit of God was like carrying Jesus along for his ministry. And that's going to be really, really significant when we talk next week about our ministry, the mission of that King. So you have the baptism of Jesus, and it's his personal Pentecost, and immediately, Matthew records, the Spirit drives him into the wilderness for temptation, And this is his proving. And then what you see is him coming out of those 40 days of temptation. He comes into this ministry, this season of proclamation. Now, as you look at the ministry of Jesus, Jesus says, here, this is what I'm here for. And let me just give you a couple of these verses. He says in Matthew 18, verse 11, for the son of man has come to save that which was lost. So why did Jesus come? Well, he came to save that which was lost. In Mark, Mark 138, Jesus says to them, let us go elsewhere to the towns nearby so that I may preach there also, for that is what I came out for. In Luke, Luke 4, verse 18 and 19, Jesus is in the synagogue of Nazareth and he's quoting the scroll of Isaiah. So this is Isaiah 49. And listen to what Jesus says. He's quoting Isaiah and he says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me Again, it's that idea of the Messiah. He has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who were oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. Mark also records in Mark 10, 45, for the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. So when you begin to look at the life of Jesus, he did not come for himself. He did not come because he's on vacation. He came to seek and save humanity. He was coming to preach the the, the grand reality of the gospel of the kingdom of God. Uh, Paul is looking at this whole thing and Philippians chapter two summarizes it by saying this. He says that Jesus emptied himself by taking on the form of a slave and by being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So when you look at the life and ministry of Jesus, it was, it was defined by, yes, his parables and his teaching that was so critical in, in the ministry of Jesus. It was defined by miracles and wonders and signs. It was the proving of that testimony or that teaching. But I love this idea that the ministry and the life of Jesus was defined by love. Or if you want to say it another way, it was defined by the cross. And yes, the cross was a moment in the life of Jesus. It's it's the pinnacle of all of history. And yet when you look at the life and the ministry of Jesus, though Jesus died upon the cross in a moment of time, do you realize that he lived out that reality of the cross every moment of every single day? In other words, when you look at the cross, the cross is all about being 
outward focus. It's about bleed, suffer, and die. Pour your life out. Roll up your sleeves. Don't think about yourself. Pour your life out. Wash the feet of others. See, the cross is symbolic of a, of a sacrificial pouring out of love. And that's how Jesus lived every single day. See, Jesus never thought about himself. See, see, Jesus never says, well, how's this going to affect me? Oh, no, is this, is this going to waste my time? Oh, there's all these people again. Jesus was constantly living love because he is love. And if you're looking at the reality of the cross, the fullness of the cross is love. So when you look at Jesus then and you look at his ministry, yes, there was a lot of amazing teaching. And man, we, we love the fact that we have that recorded in scripture. Yeah, he gave us a lot of miracles, wonders, and signs, and it was, it was a picture of his power and, and, and his anointing. And yet one of the greatest things that I, I, I just see in the Gospels that just define his, his ministry and his life is the cross itself, or this idea of a life of love. Well, let's quickly look at the death of Christ. As you come into the death of Christ, there's several things kind of leading up to it. The this last week of Jesus is really central to the Gospels. In fact, half of the, of, of the Gospel of Mark is just focused on this passion event of Jesus himself. Uh, for example, you have the whole Last Supper scene. Uh, Jesus comes in and washes the disciples' feet. John records that great discourse about the vine and the branches and, and the, the resource of the Holy Spirit. Uh, you have the whole Gethsemane thing where you have Jesus coming into the garden of Gethsemane and he's he's literally in such intense intensity of a prayer that he's sweating drops of blood. Uh, you have the, uh, the betrayal scene where Judas comes and betrays Jesus and then you have the trials. Uh, I just want to give one quick insight into this. I, it was so profound to me. Uh, I, I have read the Gospels over and over and, uh, and, and I've seen or I've thought through that whole betrayal thing on, on countless occasions. Uh, but one time I was taking our, our, a group over to Israel and uh, doing a Bible study tour. And we were just looking at scripture in the locations that was happening. It was just, just a powerful time together. And I remember being in the Garden of Gethsemane and just gave some time to everyone just to go spend some time with Jesus and, and spend time in prayer. And, and I opened up my Bible to the Gospel of John. I was just reading afresh just that scene. And I was suddenly struck by this overwhelming just pressing in my soul, looking at scripture and looking at the scene before me. And so if you've never been to Israel, the Gethsemane sits on the opposite side of Jerusalem. You have the Mount of Jerusalem, say it's over here, and it comes down to the, the Kidron Valley, this little brook area, and then you have the Mount of Olives over here, and Gethsemane's down on that Mount of Olives. And I, I knew that Judas would come from Jerusalem to, to grab Jesus, betray him and all that kind of stuff. But let me just read you this passage in John chapter 18. I want to point out something that I just was, was just so stirring to me in light of the death of Jesus. Now, this is what John records in John 18, verse 1 through 3. He says, when Jesus had spoken these words, speaking of that time where he was talking to disciples in prayer and saying that he's about to be uh, betrayed, it says that he went forth with his disciples to the other side of the Kidron Valley, where there was a garden into which he entered with his disciples. Now Judas also, who was betraying him, knew that place, for Jesus had often gathered there with his disciples. Judas then, having received the Roman cohort and officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, came there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Now we've heard this before. Jesus speaks in the upper room. He comes across the Kidron Valley. He comes and prays in the Garden of Gethsemane. And as he's praying there, he t tells the disciples, hey, arise, 
the betrayer is here. And it says, John records, that Judas came across that Kidron Valley, down, down the slope, and he's coming, it says, with lanterns and torches and weapons. And it suddenly hit me, do you realize that there's all these accounts in the Gospels where they were trying to take Jesus by force? Uh, for example, in Nazareth, uh, they didn't like what Jesus had preached, and so they were going to grab Jesus, and because they thought it was blasphemy, throw him off the cliff. <laughs> that's, that's not a good day. And it says Jesus walked through the midst of them. So you have these accounts where Jesus was, you know, was, was trying to be taken by, was, they were going to try to take Jesus by force. And yet here's a scene, just ponder this, that Jesus is praying in the garden and he looks up and here's Judas coming with lanterns and torches, which means Jesus would have seen them coming down from that mountain across Brook Kidron or that Kidron Valley and then to the Garden of Gethsemane. In other words, Jesus could have easily escaped. He, he would have seen this whole thing, lanterns and torches on, on a dark night coming down the hill across the little valley. This, this is not that far. Uh, you, you could throw a disc across the Kidron Valley. It is not that far of a valley. And yet what I, was so marvelous to me is you have the King of Kings waiting and just anticipating his betrayal. He could have escaped had he wanted to. And yet out of great mercy and love that he had for us, he patiently waited watching his betrayer come. Now, I don't know what that does for you, but man, that just stirred me afresh because I'm going to realize that the king who so overwhelmingly loves me, he willingly gave himself for me. That, that he could have escaped, he, he could have ran away, and yet on the moment or the, the night of his betrayal, he was just, he was waiting for it to take place, and he was watching them come, and, and just the anticipation of that just had to been, that had to been intense. Man, I just love Jesus for that. I, you, you see the scene where, where Judas and the officers grab Jesus, and they really take him into six illegal trials. It's interesting, all six of these that happened over the course of that night, every single one of them is illegal. Uh, there were three Jewish trials. There was one before Annas, Caiaphas, and then the Sanhedrin to rubber stamp the whole thing. And of course, there were three Roman trials, if you want to say them that or call it that. Uh, one before Pilate, then he was sent over to Herod, and then Herod sent him back to Pilate. And again, when you look at the Roman legal system, when you look at the Jewish legal system, what you find is that because it was at night and because of the circumstances, all six of those were illegal. And yet they just rubber stamped the thing and sent Jesus off to be scourged and then crucified uh, upon that cross. And yet when you look at the death of Jesus, do you realize it is a perfect fulfillment of the Passover? It is a perfect fulfillment of all the prophecies. It is a perfect fulfillment of Psalm 22. And what you see is just this overwhelming reality that, that God is setting the stage for something. That he, as I've, I've said all along, he has a purpose and a plan and he's accomplishing his his plan through Jesus Christ. And all of this is coming to a climactic moment, which is this crucifixion event. In fact, this is so much, this is so much so, if you will, that in Matthew 27, listen to what this says. Matthew records that at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out again and with a loud voice yielded up his spirit. And you can say, well, why is that so significant? Oh, because Matthew records it's the ninth hour. Well, what's happening at the ninth hour? Oh, this is the moment that down at the temple, the high priest took the Passover lamb for that year. 
Now, we, all, we know that all the families had Passover lambs, but Israel had one Passover lamb for the year. And at the ninth hour, on that particular moment, the same time Jesus was hanging up on that cross, the high priest took his knife, went to the Passover lamb for the year, and slit its throat as, as an offering, as a celebration of the Passover, as a fulfillment of the freedom from slavery to Egypt. And what was happening at that exact moment Jesus, at the ninth hour, gave up his spirit as the Passover lamb freeing us from slavery to sin. I mean, that is, that is so perfectly timed. Again, nothing in this is accidental. God is purposing and planning this whole thing. I, I love what John the Baptist said about Jesus in John 1, 29. It says that on the next day, John the Baptist saw Jesus come to him and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Well, what is John the Baptist referring to? Oh, the Passover lamb. Uh, Peter picks up that theme in 1 Peter 1, verse 18 and 19. And he says, knowing that you were, re you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your futile conduct inherited from your forefathers. Well, how are you redeemed? Oh, with the precious blood as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. This, this thing is so perfect down to the moment by moment that God is, again, everything in the Old Testament is coming to this climactic moment. Everything in the New Testament is going to flow from this wondrous reality of Jesus and his redemptive work on the cross. Now we know three days later, it was the day of first fruits. It was the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And, and I know we talk about this all the time. Let me just give you three quick thoughts when it comes to the resurrection do you realize that unlike any other religion, our God lives, that, that he is not in a tomb. Yes, he gave up his life. He became a man. He ministered. He gave up his life. He died. And yet our God lives. That is so triumphant. He has triumphed over sin and death and hell. And because of his death and resurrection, we have forgiveness we have redemption, we have salvation, and we have life. And if that's not enough, which that should be, I mean, that, that alone is just phenomenal, but it is this same God then that gives us everything we need for life and godliness. Do you realize that when you look at the life and ministry of Jesus, this is what everything points to, that the God of the universe stepped off of his throne, became a man, lived and ministered and gave up his life for us. He was the perfect sacrifice that you and I could never have been. He was that pure and spotless lamb that literally went to a cross so that you and I could receive mercy and forgiveness and salvation and life eternal. And Peter, I love what Peter says. He says, do you realize that he has not only provided you salvation, he has given you everything, everything that you need for life and for godliness. Let me just read that passage. I love this from first or sorry, second Peter chapter one, verse three through eight. Peter says this, seeing that Jesus' divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the full knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. For by these, he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises so that by them, you may become partakers of the divine nature having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. Now for this very reason, also applying all diligence in your face, supply moral excellence 
and in your moral excellence, knowledge, and in your knowledge, self-control, and in your self-control, perseverance, and in your self uh, in your perseverance, godliness, and in your godliness, brotherly kindness, and in your brotherly kindness, love. For if these things are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the full knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Do you realize that he has given us everything we need for life and godliness? And now we get to share in his divine nature that his character, his attributes should be growing and increasing so that we become fruitful, that, that our lives become effective for his use in this world. Now, next week, I want to talk about that more fully and this idea that this king has given his people a very specific mission. And just as a reminder, until then, every single week on my personal podcast, I've been walking through the section of scripture we're looking at and talking about glimpses of Jesus from that section. Now, this one's obviously easy because it's all about Jesus, but I want to talk specifically about the birth of Jesus and some of the profound cultural things that influence our understanding of the birth of Christ. So if you want to join me on the Deeper Christian Podcast, I'd love to have you listen in and just join me in this mini-series looking at these Christophanies or these glimpses of Jesus throughout the entirety of Scripture. Could I just freshly encourage you, don't, don't miss the fact that everything in scripture leads us to Jesus and the cross. I know I keep saying that over and over, but that is so critical. As you read through the gospels afresh, will you just, just be in awe of the wonder of our precious, precious King? And let us celebrate him, not just for a day or a holiday every single year. Let us celebrate the birth, the life, the ministry, the death, the resurrection, and the ascension of our precious Jesus every single day of the year. Daily Thunder is a listener-supported production of Ellerslie Discipleship Training. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and build brave-hearted Christians for such a time as this. Daily Thunder episodes are released every day, Monday through Friday, from our campus in Windsor, Colorado. And our weekly sermon is delivered live at 9 a.m. on Sunday mornings with a delayed live stream available at noon Mountain Time. Go to ellersley.com forward slash daily to get all the details. Thanks for listening.